You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I'm a big fan of naps. And I'm Josh, and I'm an audio guy, and honestly, I could really use a nap right now. On this episode, we are talking about the sacraments. What are they? Where did they come from? And how many are there? So grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice, and join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might expect. Well, Jenny, it's good to talk to you again. Josh, yeah. So there are avid fans will notice that we uh, we missed an upload. We've been trying to upload every two weeks, and uh, I had some stuff going on, and Josh, you had some stuff going on, and just needed a little little break, but we're back. Yeah, yeah, so we do apologize for not having a consistent schedule these last, last bit, but some things were unexpected, some things were planned, but one of us got sick. And screwed up, even though one of us like had made plans and like, hey, I'm going on this trip with my sister, so let's record. Oh, no, I can't. I'm sick. Yeah. It was me. <laughs> I was the one who got sick multiple times. Yeah, Josh, you don't need to apologize. You've uh, you've suffered enough. For those wondering, I was in the hospital for a few days. It's We're all good now-ish, except my diet is miserable. But anyway. We're better, is what you're saying. We're better. We're Absolutely. Better, we're better people than we were yesterday. So what are you drinking, Josh? Right now, since I am still on a multitude of antibiotics and pills, I am having good old-fashioned water. Nice. Very, right? very healthy. Very responsible. And weird, like my body doesn't know how to handle, like, hey, you're not filling me with crap. What is this? <laughs> but what about yourself? Uh, I am drinking a citrus wheat ale. Mmm. It's really good. Friend of mine has been catching up on the podcast. Uh, you know who you are, and uh, sent me a message and said, "You drink a lot of IPAs." And I was like, first of all, rude. Second of all, accurate. So I'm drinking a citrus wheat ale. It's not an IPA this time. Nice. Look at you. And yeah, yep. They know who they are, and we know who you are. I don't know why I got creepy there. That's that's for. <laughs> So today we're going to do something just a little, I think, a little different than some of our other episodes, because we're not going to talk about something that is specific to the Bible, although obviously it relates to the Bible and to Christianity. Uh, We're going to talk about sacraments. I think people will probably have different levels of familiarity with this. Like some people will say, oh, yeah, like. I can name all seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, and other people will be thinking, I don't even know what a sacrament is. So we'll try to give some basic information, talk about some of the differences between different denominations, because, uh, spoiler alert, uh, not everybody has seven. No, uh, for my religion class, and I know Jenny's as well, we were fortunate enough to only have to learn about two. Yes. So... And I actually pulled out, I was showing Jenny earlier on our cameras, I was 
pulled out my old Luther's small catechism with explanation. Nerd! From when I was... Nerd! Right? From when I was in junior high, so, you know, a long time ago. And there's notes and highlights, and I don't remember what any of it means specifically, because I don't know. I just, one, my handwriting was even more atrocious back then, and two, I don't necessarily think they taught everything that I uh, agreed with. But, at least now. But I do have, right up top, sacraments are God's love personalized. Ooh, I like that. I was going to say, Josh, I'm I'm poking fun at you for still having your small catechism from when you were in middle school. I went through a bunch of boxes today trying to find my, because I have a catechism that has like commentary, which would have been really helpful for this episode, and I couldn't find it. So I don't know what box it's in. So you're overprepared and I'm underprepared and it's, it's fine. Everything's fine. This is an exact opposite of how it usually goes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care for it. Uh, I do like that definition, though. God's love personalized. That's fun. Yeah. We should probably get it started. Like, what is a sacrament? Like, you know, obviously I made the quote that one of the pastors I studied under told us it's a God's love personalized. But what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. So I know I have here, it's a, a sacrament is a sacred act instituted by God in which God, I'm changing it to themselves, has joined their word of promise to a visible element. Nice. That's a good definition. And there is a lot there that we could uh, unpack. Uh, I would say the first bit of that is probably the best place to start, right? That a sacrament is a sacred act. It's like base definition. It comes from Latin, and that is literally what it means. It means something sacred, something that's set apart because it's holy. And that concept, uh, I mean, I'm sure it exists in in probably most of the world's religions, um, but it certainly goes back to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible, and the idea of certain times or certain places or certain activities being set apart and those being sacred. So that's the whole concept of like the Sabbath, for example, that you have six days of the week that are ordinary, and then you have one day of the week, the Sabbath, that is sacred, that is set apart. And so certainly the, the Jewish tradition and then into Christianity, we have this idea of some things are special, some things are sacred, and that could be, like we said, a sacred time, it could be a place that is sacred in some way or set apart, or it could be certain activities that are sacred. And so if you start with that definition, that could encompass a whole lot of stuff, right? I mean, you could say that every prayer is sacred. Every prayer is kind of sacramental in that broad sense because it is, you know, you're setting apart time and energy for, for something devoted to God. I did a little bit of reading and in the early church, there was not a clear consensus on how many sacraments there were. And I think that's because at its base meaning, it's, it's a pretty vague term. So some people said, oh, there's like 10 or 11. And some people said less. And probably were people who said more, but the idea of a sacred act of something that's kind of set apart from ordinary life could apply to a lot of things. Yeah. I'm always a little confused about, you know, why some, you know, religions have multiple ones while, you know, we were raised with two. And to me, it always seemed like because 
it was an act that you yourself participated in almost with the church. And maybe that's me just getting my thinking completely wrong or maybe understanding it wrong. But that's that's why I thought that, you know, there's only two because, you know, some of the other ones like, yeah, you're you're participating, but you're not. It's not necessarily as sacred or I don't know. I'm just still trying to figure out like the differences and why. Yeah, totally. The broad definition of sacrament, like I said, could apply to a lot of things. And I think over the course of time, that definition got refined. And like, depending on how you define it, that's going to kind of limit what is or isn't a sacrament. And so really, a lot of this was hammered out in uh, the Middle Ages and into the Reformation period. So we are definitely going to have to talk about our boy, Martin Luther. He had a lot to do with refining and, and sort of clarifying what we mean by sacraments. And that sort of goes in, in two ways, that Luther had opinions, and some people really agreed with his opinions, and some people really disagreed with his opinions. Uh, but one way or another, he was kind of setting the, the battle line, so to speak. So again, just a little historical background. I looked into the sacraments in the Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments, and I believe that the Eastern Orthodox Church has the same seven. The deciding that it was seven goes back to the 1400s. So there was, this is before the Reformation, so before any of the Protestant churches existed. There was a council that the, the Roman Catholic Church had in 1439. It was called the Council of Florence. At that council, they enumerated seven sacraments. And then that list of seven ended up being reaffirmed after Martin Luther, like, fucked a lot of stuff up. Then the Catholic Church was like, yes, these are our seven. Don't listen to those Lutherans. They're unreliable. So the seven for the Catholics. Josh, do you want to take a guess? Uh, so I know we have baptism and I guess what we would call communion, mm -hmm, the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. uh, Five to go. Marriage is one. Yeah. Is it like, uh, what's the word? Anointing the sick? Mm-hmm. With... And is that like, does that include like last rites? Is that? Yes, that that includes last rites. And I think that's sort of the most important expression of that, of giving someone last rites before they die. What else is there? I know there's at least one or two about like service and I can't remember like the specifics of it. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty solid. I'm cheating because I'm looking at the list right now. But you got baptism, communion, matrimony, marriage. Um, and anointing of the sick. There is also penance. So that would be like going to confession and then doing your Hail Marys or Our Fathers or whatever your penance is. Holy orders, which I think includes like monastic orders. So if you like took vows as a monk or a nun and also ordination for priests, uh, that kind of thing. And then the last one is confirmation. So confirmation, sometimes it's called affirmation of baptism. It's for, for churches that baptize infants, confirmation is like the point at which you say like, yes, I am affirming, I am a Christian of whatever flavor. 
I accept these kind of responsibilities for myself that I was a tiny baby when my parents had me baptized and I couldn't agree to anything. It's always like a point of like, con- not contention, confusion for me, where it's like we baptize these these babies, like they have no idea what's happening. They can't accept like, and then, you know, you do communion or um, confirmation where it's like, yeah, but you're like 14, maybe 15. Like, <laughs> like I, I, you've got it all figured out, right? right? Like, I don't, I don't know about other 14, 15 year olds, but when I was that age, I did not care. It was, I had to do this and like looking back, obviously I'm glad I did, but at the time I was just like, okay, this is what we do. And now I can drink wine and eat wafers during church. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> With, I mean, you learn it and you learn like, hey, this is really important, but it's like, but do you really get it at that age? I know some people probably do, but yeah, it kind of relates to that whole baptism when you're an infant. Like, you, do you really know what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, I think we should definitely come back around to that, the question of, like, infant baptism versus believer's baptism. But one thing that I always tell my my older church members, because older church members will be like, well, you know, this this teenager, they don't really understand what's going on. Or like, oh, you can't have, you can't give communion to this, like, five-year-old because they don't really understand what communion means. And I always just say, like, do you fully understand what communion means? Like, you 70-year-old person who's been in church your entire life, have you got it all figured out? Probably not. No, you have the cliff notes, and that's basically all you remember and all you go with. Yeah, and so I think it's really important, this is kind of my personal theology of the sacraments, I think it's really important to recognize that we are always learning more about our faith we're always growing in our faith, regardless of our age. And and we'll, we'll get more into this, but that the sacraments are really not about what we understand. Like our intellectual comprehension is not the point. Um, but sometimes people need a reminder of that. Mm-hmm. I agree. So let's, uh, let's, let's dive back into our little Reformation history lesson. So the seven sacraments were kind of enumerated in the Catholic Church before the Reformation, and then you get to Martin Luther, who in the the early 1500s starts a lot of shit, and we're not going to like go into all of that like Reformation history, but what ended up happening, and this was not Luther's uh, intention at the start, is that the Roman Catholic Church fragmented and a whole bunch of people uh, branched off and became Protestants because they were protesting certain things about the Catholic Church of their time. And from that, we get Lutherans and Anabaptists and Calvinists and eventually Anglicans and Methodists and Baptists, like all of the Protestant denominations that exist today go back to this 16th century period. And as these different Protestant groups were kind of figuring out their own identities and they were figuring out what things they believed and didn't believe and like where they wanted to differentiate themselves from the Catholic Church and where they wanted to differentiate themselves from other Protestants because they all didn't agree with each other, the sacraments were one of these things that they kind of had to 
drill down on and figure out like, well, what, what does this mean? What do we believe about these things? So a lot of the differences between these Christian groups have a lot to do with the sacraments and the way the sacraments are defined. So Catholics have seven, we already talked about. Lutherans, Martin Luther ended up narrowing it down to two, 2.5. There's one that almost made the cut. I was going to say, I have a specific note in the catechism that says sometimes holy absolution is counted as a third sacrament, even though it has no divinity instituted with a visible element. Yeah. Yes. Josh, what is holy absolution? I have no idea. I'm assuming it's kind of like, is it when, um, I might cut this out if I'm wrong, because that's just how we're going to do it. <laughs> is it like how during the service, like the priest like, can, you know, forgive you and absolve you of all of your sins and kind of like the benediction, like go forth and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's the, it's the forgiveness. So sometimes, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as confession and forgiveness. Um, absolution does refer to like your sins being absolved, um, being forgiven. That was, that was really important for Luther. And so he, that he was kind of on the fence about that one. Cause he was like, this is absolutely something that all Christians should do, which is one of his kind of criteria for sacraments. Um, and so he almost included that one in his list, but he ended up just sticking with the two, which are baptism and communion. Luther's, and this is going to be sort of, you know, boiling it down, Cliff Notes version, but Luther's criteria for figuring out what was a sacrament, there were a couple of things that went into that. So one was uh, that these were things that all Christians should do. So that would, for example, exclude things like holy orders and marriage, because you don't have to do those things to be a Christian, right? Some Christians take holy orders, some Christians get married, but neither of those is mandatory. And so that was part of the reason that Luther was like, no, those aren't sacraments. They still matter, right? Like Luther wasn't saying they're garbage, but he was just saying they're not on the same level as these sacraments. So the sacraments are things that all Christians are supposed to do. So baptism and communion meet that. And that they are things that Christ commanded his followers to do. And this was a big thing for Luther because Luther was going back to scripture as his primary source and saying, you know, it's not enough uh, to look at the tradition or to look at what, you know, theologians and church fathers have said, like, we have to go back to what the Bible says. And so for Luther, his like reading of that was that only these two sacraments were commanded by Jesus. And I think there was something in in your notes, Josh, that kind of referenced that. Are we talking about like the, the visible element? Yeah, divinely instituted. Yeah, divinely instituted visible element. And for examples, it has um, Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 10, where it talks about Peter saying, repent and be baptized. And then 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is not the communion of blood of Christ, question mark. The bread which we break is not the communion of the body of Christ, question mark. Yeah, so Luther went back to scripture and said, like, these are the two that Jesus himself commanded. So we see, obviously, references to baptism 
in other parts of the New Testament. We see references to communion uh, in other parts of the New Testament. This is a like a tangent that we could maybe go on another time. But even to say, like, what did Jesus command is kind of tricky because, like, we have four Gospels and none of them were written by Jesus. So there's already a degree of separation uh, from, like, the actual words of Jesus. But I don't think Luther was too concerned about that. That's sort of a more modern biblical studies kind of question. But Jesus does say in the Gospels, like, he gives them the bread and he gives them the wine at the Last Supper. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So there's kind of that imperative, like, do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives his disciples his instructions and he says, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we have these things that are like specific commands of Jesus. Whereas Jesus doesn't tell people you must undergo marriage, you must take holy orders, you must be confirmed, right? So those were things that Luther said like, no, those are, we're going to take down a peg. They're not as central because they weren't commanded by Christ for all Christians to do. Which I guess for the confirmation aspect in some churches, like, you know, you do you do get confirmed before you can take communion. And some are like, no, if you believe and you're baptized, you're welcome. And so that kind of also splits a lot, too, because even between different Lutheran denominations, you get that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty sure the church that I went to growing up, I can't necessarily probably take communion there anymore because I left that branch of Lutheran and joined a different one. Yeah. So... Yeah, that was fun. That was a fun letter I got. Yeah, it's tough, right? And I've I've talked to many um, people who were Catholic, Roman Catholic for many, many years and have ended up in the Lutheran Church because there's a lot of similarities. But folks who have been divorced and who are no longer welcome to take communion at their Catholic Church because they're divorced. And that's that's really painful for people. And, and I'm not going to, like, speak for the Catholic doctrine because I don't, like, that's not my area of expertise. But just looking at the kind of impact of it pastorally, people know that these sacraments are important. And so to be denied the sacrament for some reason is very painful. And I think that's something that, you know, as, like, church leaders, we have to take really seriously. I mean, things happen. Every, I mean, that's kind of the whole point. Like, hey, things happen, you make a bad decision, things, people change. Like, that could be the reason of, like, a marriage being dissolved. Because they're like, oh, this isn't the same person that I married. Or, hey, after realizing this, this isn't a good thing for either of us. It's destroying us both mentally and physically. Like, it's better all around for their mental health, probably their spiritual health, to be divorced. But then you have some cases where it's not an acceptable thing, but it's for the safety. And, yeah, I don't want to just drag on... Roman Catholic belief because there's a lot of Protestant churches that kind of believe the same thing. Like you should never get divorced. Well, that to me, that is an issue right there. And maybe one that's causing couples to be like, ah, do we really want to go here? I was divorced once because X, Y, Z. Well, and like you said, you know, even the Protestant denominations saying like, we're not going to let you take communion here because you weren't 
baptized in this specific tradition, or you weren't confirmed in this tradition, or you, you know, changed to a different church, and so, like, now we're not going to accept you. And there are also churches that have said, like, oh, we're not going to give you the sacraments if we know that you're gay, which I think is bullshit, to use a technical term. Yeah, and I mean, if we're going to go back to some of our older episodes where we had Emmy as a guest, like, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's stupid that we would get denied this gift from God because of how God created that person. going to breathe that one out really quick. <laughs> we're just all going to scream into a pillow and then we're back. Yeah, I've just got to remember my parents listen to this, so let's not drop the <laughs> F-bombs on my part until I'm really, really pissed, which we're getting there. You know, this stuff about sacraments, I think it's really interesting how one of my seminary professors told us this, that practice shapes theology. And what that means is the, the things that Christians do, whatever their reasons may be for it, the actual practices that become habitual and become ingrained then drive how we understand and think about those same things. So a great example of this is the Trinity, right? So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't tell us what that means, the Trinity. It's, it's not explained. And actually what we see in the New Testament is what we just mentioned a few minutes ago, that Jesus says baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian formula. And so Christians were like, okay, that's what we're going to do. And they're baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they're asking each other, like, what does that mean? <laughs> well, who are these figures, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And how do they relate to each other? And then they, like, argued about it for a couple hundred years to develop the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Trinitarian practice predates the Trinitarian theology. And I think that still happens today when we think about just how people experience the sacraments and sort of what their expectations are and how they make sense of them then ends up driving theology and, you know, church policy and things like that which is really interesting because we like to think that we start from like really good, clear ideas and then like what are the consequences of that, but it often goes the other way. Yeah, and maybe this is just my personal view on stuff, but I think at least for, you know, the two sacraments that we, you know, acknowledge as sacraments, it's a very public thing, but it's also a very personal thing going into it. You know, say you're baptized later on in life, you like you have that choice, like you have to make that decision to want to do this and so like leading on you go to confirmation where you do can can make that choice to you know partake in communion in certain places and communion is a very public like you know this is god's gift to you but to me i was always kind of taught like yes but before you go up you need to reflect on your sins and like ask for forgiveness or else it's pretty much a worthless not a worthless meal but it's it's not doing what it's meant to do if you're not mentally and spiritually prepped. Yeah, maybe maybe let's talk a little bit more about 
specifically the Lutheran understanding of the sacraments, because I think that's going to tie into some of the stuff you're talking about. So we already talked about sort of Luther's criteria for the sacraments, but Luther is also really clear about what goes into a sacrament, like what are the pieces of a sacrament. And you definitely had this in your in your middle school confirmation notes that you were reading earlier. Um, I don't remember exactly what words you used, but this idea of like a physical sign that that is part of the sacraments. So in baptism, the physical element is water. In communion, it's wine and bread or grape juice or wafers, you know, but there's something physical. There's something tangible. What I like about that is we as human beings are physical and tangible and sometimes our like little monkey brains need things to be really concrete and sometimes you need something tangible to really like wrap your head around you know my husband tells me every day that he loves me and that's wonderful but sometimes i still need a hug right? Like, I need that, like, physical, like, reminder of a thing that I know to be true. And the sacraments are kind of like that because they have this physical element. That's a really good example. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) (laughs) That was just perfect. Yeah. And then the thing about the physical element is, like, there is obviously this tradition behind it that, like, baptizing in water and doing communion with bread and wine, like goes back to the early church. But it's also really interesting. And I love to tell this story. When I was in seminary, we had a classmate who was actually from Ethiopia, uh, who was in our, our seminary class. And she, when we talked about the sacraments, she kind of raised her hand and shared that in some of the communities that she had been a part of, They would baptize with sand if they didn't have enough fresh water available. And our professor got like so excited about it because it's a great example of like, I mean, first of all, just like adapting to your circumstances, but there was still a physical sign. It was like, okay, well, we don't have enough water to baptize with water, so we're going to baptize with sand and that's going to be the physical element, which I thought was very cool. And after hearing that, Our professor, who is Finnish, talked about how when she was growing up in Finland, sometimes they didn't have wine because, I don't know, it was expensive or it wasn't available. And so they would just use like berry juice, like just mashed up berries, and they would use that as the wine for communion, which is very similar, right? There's still a physical element. It's not maybe what has been like traditional in Christian history, but it's still doing the thing that the sacrament is meant to do, which is very cool. The other two pieces for the sacraments, which are actually more important than the physical sign, it's a physical sign joined with the word of God, right? And that's what makes communion different from the bread that you get at the restaurant, you know, when you go to to lunch after church. It's God's word that's actually making it holy. So sometimes I tell my confirmation kids, like, I, I ask them, where do you think the water that's in the baptismal font comes from? And the truth is, it just comes from the tap. It's ordinary water. It's not special, sacred, magic water. What makes it a sacrament is actually the fact that God's word 
is being brought together with this physical element. So I, I know with baptism, at least, like, in theory, anybody could baptize in the name of God. Like, I've heard stories of nurses baptizing a newborn that doesn't look like it has long to survive. And I remember when I was working at the Catholic radio station, and I was talking to some of the the Catholics that I worked with, and that I visited with, and talking about baptism, and it's like, well, why don't, you know, do ch- why don't churches rebaptize somebody was brought up and it's like well the the first one stuck i'm pretty sure <laughs> right and these are the kind of questions where it like really gets to the heart of what we think these sacraments are so with the example of somebody who's not like a priest or a pastor performing a baptism what's really at the heart of that question is is the sacrament dependent on the person performing it right and this was actually like a question in the early church that they had to like sort out and they came to a conclusion that no it's not the like holiness of the priest that makes the sacrament work it's god that makes the sacrament work and so you know in our denomination we talk about the sacraments being performed by clergy. That's sort of the standard, and that is what is considered, like, good order. If you're in extreme circumstances, right, like Christian communities living underground during the Soviet Union or, you know, in certain parts of the world today where you literally can't find a pastor, it's like, yeah, any believer can perform the sacraments. In 21st century America, you probably aren't in those extreme circumstances, right? Like, you can probably get somebody who is ordained and and trained to to perform the sacraments. But strictly speaking, you know, from the, the theological point of view, you don't need to be ordained to perform the sacraments. Because when I'm doing the words of institution on Sunday morning to bless, you know, the communion elements, that's not about me, right? It's not like God is checking to see if Pastor Jenny is worthy enough to make this sacrament work, right? Because if that were the case, that would be terrifying. I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if it was like dependent on my worthiness. No way. In all fairness, no one would be like, no one would be able to perform that then because if it's all about worthiness like we're all human we're all scumbags compared to what we're trying to achieve for like we're never gonna do it we can't make it right yeah so like i'm i'm up there saying the words i have training and education and like you know things that that are helpful for like just running a church service but the sacrament doesn't depend on me and i consider that really good uh, it's really good that it's not dependent on me. So yeah, so that's one of the the pieces of like, how do we understand the sacrament? And what it really comes down to is that we, as Lutherans, we believe that the sacraments are about what God is doing, not about what human beings are doing. Yes. Um, I know when I learned that anybody could baptize, I definitely baptized my childhood dog. Just because like animals don't have souls. Okay, well... I don't care, like... (laughs) I'm going to call your bishop. Well, you'd have to go back (laughs) a few years into a different denomination of Lutheran. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, But But seriously, you're you're going to hell. No! (laughs) Hell's not real. 
We can do a different episode about that. Oh my gosh, yeah, because I have this whole opinion how hell is everyday life because we're living it away from God. But that's a whole different belief that I've ran with over the years. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll do one on the afterlife. Yeah, but like the sacraments are about what God is doing. They're dependent on God's goodness, not on human goodness. And one of the things that I really emphasize, especially with baptism, is that it's about God's promises. And this is an area where, like, Lutherans and Episcopalians and some of the other mainline Protestant denominations differ from Baptists and evangelical non-denominational kind of churches, places where they practice believers' baptism meaning that they don't baptize infants. They don't baptize someone until that person is old enough to say, I want to be baptized. Now, that could be like fully in adulthood. It could be when they're 10 years old, but like not infancy. They have to like express a desire to be baptized. And, you know, I'll sometimes talk with parents that have young kids and they'll say like, well, I don't think we should, you know, have our kid baptized until they're old enough to say that they want that. And I like I'm respectful of parenting choices that people make. Like, I'm not going to tell you how to raise your kids. But what I'll tell families is, you know, in our tradition, we believe that baptism is about promises that God is making to us and also promises that parents are making to their children. If if we're talking about baptizing a, a young child, that it's not. It's not dependent on the person wanting it. It's not dependent on the person expressing their belief or their intention or their will. It's really about God saying, this is my child, right? This idea of like, you are a child of God. And, you know, none of us chooses our parents. We don't choose who we're born to. And likewise, you know, in baptism, I don't think it's really up to to us to say like, yes, now I am God's. It's God who's adopting us. God is the one who has the the will and the power to like do something in baptism. So it's just a different way of thinking about it. And, you know, obviously people are going to make the choices that they want to make. And that kind of actually brings me to a, a quote from Luther's Small Catechism, because I'm nerding out. Number 292, do all communicants receive the body and blood in the sacrament whether they believe or not? Yes, because the sacrament depends on Christ's word, not our faith. So that kind of leans back to baptism. It's not us saying yes, it's God saying, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and, you know, this kind of, for me at least, this is really comforting because there are, there are weeks where, like, I'm not sure... I have faith, right? That there are weeks where I'm not feeling it and I'm like maybe we're just going through the motions and like maybe there's nothing here. But when I take the sacrament of communion, even if I don't believe it in that moment, what our tradition teaches is that it is the body and blood of Christ because Christ said so right? Not because I believe it to be true. And my experience has been that the the kind of power and impact of that is like all the more profound when I'm not feeling it, 
right? Like the times where I'm like, I don't know if this is real or not. And then like I take communion and I'm like, oh, things are bigger than me. And like my doubts and my insecurities, it's like, oh, actually I am being connected to the vastness of God in this sacrament, like even if I'm not believing it. And it it's hard to articulate, but it really does feel like yeah, there's something more going on here than what my brain can come up with. Makes sense to me. My favorite thing to teach about the sacrament of communion, and this was also something that a seminary professor said to me once, is uh, the point of communion is that you are what you eat. And I really love that. It's one of those things that, like, it's very brief, but, like, you could think about it for a decade, which is about how long I've been thinking about it. You are what you eat, right? Like in the sacrament, we believe like you're taking the body of Christ and you are also becoming the body of Christ. That like biblically, those two images are interlinked, right? That the New Testament, Paul talks about we are the body of Christ. Christ died and was raised and ascended into heaven. And now the body of Christ is the church. And the New Testament has very strong imagery that communion is receiving the body of Christ. You become what you consume, right? You consume Christ, you become Christ. And it's a little bit of just like wordplay, but I feel like there's some profound truth hiding in there of like, yeah, God might really know what God is up to here. Well, since we're starting to run up against time a little bit, I do have a question. All right. In this day and age with you know, technology the way it is. Can a pastor bless bread and wine from afar? This is the best question. This is the best question. This is the question that every clergy person I know was freaking out about in March of 2020 when everything locked down and we were like, how the hell do we do church? The question of the sacraments became really pressing. So I'm going to tell you my my opinion. I'm also going to tell you the like official position of the ELCA, which is the denomination that I'm a part of. And I'm going to tell you up front, those two are not the same. Technically, somebody could get mad at me, but that's all right. So the the official position of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, is that the sacraments can't be consecrated virtually or remotely. That based on the entirety of Christian tradition up until the invention of the internet, you had to be in a room together to do communion. And I do understand kind of the weight of that history and like why that matters. I think, you know, the pandemic... <laughs> was a hell of an object lesson in why face-to-face -face communication is important. Like when we were all forced to go without it, we were like, wow, it really does make a difference to be in a room with other people. So I, I respect that. But in the, the first couple of months of the pandemic, well, first they said, we're going to shut down for two weeks. You remember that? Oh my, yeah. That was a fun little moment where we were like, two weeks. And when it was two weeks, my co-pastor and I were like, okay, we'll, f we'll do like some kind of online worship, but we'll leave out communion because, you know, people are going to be okay if it's just a couple of weeks 
A lot of folks don't take communion every Sunday anyway. But as it became clear that it was going to go on a long time, that we were like isolated, we decided that we had to, we had to make the sacrament available to our people. And a lot of churches came to that same decision, and there were different ways that they handled it. So some churches did like drive-through, where you were still receiving the sacrament face-to-face from your pastor or your priest, but like through your car window, and everybody was like masked up. Some churches would like consecrate the elements and then send them to people or like deliver them to people's doors. What we ended up doing which goes against, like, the official policy of the ELCA, but, like, it's all right. You can call my bishop. She already knows. We instructed people to create some kind of sacred space in their own home, kind of a little home altar, and we were doing our worship as a live stream, and so we would say, like, everybody is going to tune into the live stream at the, you know, designated time and have your little space set up ahead of time have some bread and wine or juice or whatever. And, you know, when it came time for the words of institution, I was in my guest room at my house lifting up a couple of crackers and saying the words of institution and, you know, trusting that my people all over in all of their homes were, you know, lifting up their elements at the same time uh, and that we were still communing together even though we were separate. And... It's it's really tricky. I think that there have been some some like implications and consequences from that. I think maybe we anticipated, but they like weren't the most pressing at the time. But overall, I don't regret that decision because I think it was more important for people to have the sacrament and to have the impact of it that I was talking about earlier, right? Of like the presence of God in this sacrament that was more important than doing it face to face. So that was that was where I came down on it and uh you know I I'll stand by it. Uh I think being together physically there is like a power in that that I think matters, but you know sometimes shit hits the fan and you have to do things differently <laughs> and the pandemic was certainly that. Well, and cuz that leads me to you know, another question, idea that I had, like, like how can, how can you continue care for some of these, you know, your members when they have cancer and they have to be secluded? They can't be around anybody or anything because all the antibodies that their body is made is dead. They can eat certain things from this care facility or the hospital. Like, why can't that translate? I mean, that, and that's kind of raised that whole question because the pandemic just, you know, like you said, it just kind of went, everything went to hell. Like we had no idea how to handle this. And it's like, I think part of the, the way that I think about the sacraments and like maybe this is kind of the note that I'll end on is we talked about like the sacraments are about what God is doing, which I think is really important. But the sacraments are also like for our sake, right? That like, I believe we have God's love and acceptance whether or not we're baptized and whether or not we take communion. But I think because we are flesh and blood creatures, we need those tangible signs. And that's what the sacraments do. So, you know, for example, thinking about baptism, if somebody comes to me and says, 
my loved one died and they were never baptized. Are they in hell? It's like, well, first of all, hell doesn't exist. But more importantly, no. <laughs> They're not, I just cannot believe or teach or accept that people are condemned to hell because they are not baptized. So the way that I understand it and the way that I'll explain it to people is your being loved and accepted by God is not contingent on baptism. But the amazing thing about baptism is that then we have the assurance, right? That like you never have to doubt for the rest of your life whether or not you've been accepted by God because you can say like, yeah, in this sacred moment when I was baptized, I was adopted as a child of God and I can always be sure of that. So it's not like we have to get that checked off on God's checklist to like make it into heaven. It's that we need it. And once we have it, then we can always have it. Right. And like you don't have to wonder, you don't have to doubt. So the sacraments are really like for our sake in that sense and not like because we have to pass God's checklist. And that makes sense because why would, you know, like why would we need to take communion every week, every other week? You know, I, I assume Christ instructed it because taking that time to remember the sacrifice and the love that God has and has done. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Jenny. Thank you very much. This has been really fun. This has been really interesting. Yeah, this is a good conversation. Um, I'm glad that we, we took some time to talk about it. Yeah, and it, I think we have ideas for other shows that we are going to do now, talking about our disagreements with is hell real or not. Mm-hmm. But that is a whole different subject for a different day. <laughs> but we want to thank everyone for tuning in. And tuning in, that's such an old phrase. Like, no one tunes in anymore. Like, it's just, you just click it. Thanks for clicking on our links. <laughs> listen to our podcast if you have any questions or comments or anything just send us an email we'll take a look at it yeah thanks for listening if we think you're a fool we won't call you that (laughs) we'll just uh, agree that everybody has different opinions on things that got really awkward thanks for listening to irreverent bible talk we will see you again soon thanks for listening to irreverent bible talk You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.